With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, friends. This is Dory Clark, and we are here with Newsweek, and this is a special series that is presented by the government of Japan. We are gonna be talking over the course of the next month, every Wednesday, about creating the economy of the future. Today, we are here to talk about the future of capitalism, and our special guest is Adam Posen. Adam is here with us, he's an economist, he's also the president of the Peterson Institute for International Economics, and my personal favorite, I have to say I'm a little jealous of this, Adam, The Atlantic in 2012 called Adam a superstar central banker. That's that's pretty sexy. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's a laurel that for, I for, 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 for central bankers. That's pretty sexy. Yeah. <sighs> Absolutely. Well, well, well deserved. And we're so glad to have you here. And if you are tuning in live to join us, we are we're talking the future of capitalism. This is this is important and exciting stuff. And we would love to hear your questions and who you are. So please feel free to type into the chat box and let us know who you are where you're tuning in from, and throughout the course of our conversation, we're going to be taking your questions for Adam Posen as well. So Adam, really glad to have you here. And there is a lot that has been happening economically. Pretty much anyone who has been an observer over the past uh, two years of all of the chaos that the pandemic has has wrought uh, has been trying to wrap our arms around this and figure this out. My first question, just as a starting point, it seems like in the past two years, as someone who is uh, we we can say uh, an intelligent yet ignorant observer. I'm I'm not a scholar of economics, but I am somebody who reads the paper, who watches things. I and a lot of people around me feel like everything is overheated now. Property prices have gone through the roof. The stock market has gone through the roof. We're talking specifically in the United States, but in many international markets. Even uh, there's been a drawback recently, but until recently, even cryptocurrency has gone through the roof. What is happening? Are we in a bubble of everything? How do you make sense of this, Adam? Thanks so much for having me, Dory, and the chance to talk with smart people like you and normal people like your viewers and listeners, uh, as opposed to economists. I don't think bubble's quite the right word, but overheating, as you used it, I think is right. We've got too much savings chasing too few of each thing, whether it's opportunities to share in the profits that companies generate, whether it's housing in places we want it to be, whether it's goods and services, particularly the goods that like used cars and uh, that fell into shortage over the last couple of years. And I think there's two big factors going on. Notice I said it's too much savings, not too much money. That's the key point is it's not about the Fed prints money, printer goes burr, as some people used to do a meme. But when we look at data on money printing, it just doesn't correlate to anything. It's just not there. But savings, we have a world in which Americans have started saving more than they used to. That started after the last financial crisis. Most other rich countries save much more than we do to begin with, including Japan. China saves a lot, but there aren't that many good places to put your money. 
Uh, the U.S. is safer than most places, but we don't have that many great opportunities. So that ends up pushing up the value of things because there's just too few places to put all these savings. And that's kind of sad. Um, and that's why there's a strong argument that I support for doing more public investment, because all these huge amount of savings out there are driving down interest rates. And we might as well do something useful with the money and give people more things to save in. The second thing that's going on, obviously, is the economic reactions to COVID and all the human tragedies and disruption that went with that. And what and there's been a process that's throughout the world, at least throughout the world that got vaccinated, um, that you have a reopening and people have even more excess savings than they did, as they as you call it. Not everybody, of course, but the majority of people partly because they got government benefits and they didn't spend as much while we were all in lockdown. So there's a, again, this overheating word you used is right to me. Um, it's, it's chasing after supply that is inelastic, meaning we want more bikes, we want more cars, we want more, I don't know, air fryers, but we're only set up to produce so many in a short time. And so that bids up the price. So that's the sense in which we're overheating. And some of it's gonna work itself out. The short-term stuff already is starting to, but the longer-term stuff of needing to invest all the savings we got is still an issue. Yeah, I think this is such an interesting point, Adam. And so obviously one of the most visible trends to the, the average consumer over the course of the past couple of years has been the massive supply chain shortages. Yeah, I, I recently bought a new place. I've been trying to order patio furniture. I'm, you know, put, calling up my orders. They say, oh, maybe you can have it in July. Uh, maybe you can have it in October. This, this seems ridiculous for somebody who has grown up in uh, contemporary American culture where I'm used to getting it tomorrow. Like, not that I'm an impatient person, but it seems absurd to me that lawn furniture is now taking 35 weeks to arrive. What what is going on with all of this? We heard early on, oh, it's just that people are out with COVID, so there's not right. enough workers. People have colds, but don't worry, they'll come back. But it seems like now this has created a crazy tripwire. How long do you anticipate supply chain problems lasting? And what is actually going on here? This can't just be people calling in sick. No, it's not people calling in sick, although that has happened for a while. I think you're right, Dory, and this is actually a different form of inflation when you're paying the same amount for a product, but you're waiting 6, 12, 18 months for it, or you don't have the full choice on the product you want. You have to pay the same or more to get something that isn't exactly what you want. We've all got stories about that, whether we're on Amazon Prime or shopping at Target or going for furniture. And I think what is happening is, again, there's this transitional period where we built up this demand. And what's happened isn't that we're producing less than we were pre-COVID, but the demand has outstripped that. And, and so it's not that these talk about shortages is really the issue. I mean, for certain specific goods it is. But overall, it's just that the demand is more than we can meet. And some of that, again, is self-correcting. I don't know if, if you or your viewers have heard of this, but the, there's what's called the bullwhip effect or the ketchup bottle effect. You know, when you're trying to get ketchup out of the bottle, it doesn't come out, doesn't come out, and then it goes, and a huge amount comes out. 
And that's what happens with goods markets that, okay, people are running at, at, at maximum production, uh, but after a while, they end up investing more, expanding production, hiring more workers. And so then you end up with the blur. And so, you know, you'll have your pick of outdoor furniture in six, 12 months. The other thing that's going on, again, sorry to always make it short-term, long-term, but usually that's a good way to think about this, is that we had a structural change starting about 25, 30 years ago, following on the success of Toyota, notably, and other manufacturers about what was called just-in-time inventory, that they would keep just enough supplies in order to be able to meet their needs on a given day, but they wouldn't back up a lot of alternative sources or a stockpile of, of, of extra inputs. Interestingly, even though people were inspired by Toyota, Toyota didn't do that to an extreme the way some others did. They maintained a network of suppliers. They were ready to ramp up stockpiling. But anyway, there, so there is a correction accelerated by COVID and accelerated by China-US tensions of big companies deciding, okay, I got to stockpile some more inventories just in case I run short. I have to have more than one supplier. I have to have some suppliers who are not in China. And again, that's going to fix itself. But um, we had gone too far in this sort of very lean, lean way of doing production. I think that's such a, an interesting point, Adam. Thank you for that. And we are here on behalf of Newsweek with Adam Posen. Adam is the head of the Peterson Institute for International Economics, and we are talking about nothing short of the future of capitalism. So if you are tuning in here and you have questions about the economy, about anything related to, uh, to macroeconomics, microeconomics, the money in your pocket, let's bring it. Feel free to type it into the chat box for Adam Posen. We are lucky to have the opportunity to learn from him and begin to get a little bit more of a sense of some of the factors, some of the hidden factors that are shaping our lives and professional careers today. If you're enjoying this conversation, uh, make sure you tune in every Wednesday during the month of February. This is a special series about creating the economy of the future sponsored and presented by the government of Japan. We're going to be here at 1230 Eastern every Wednesday during the month of February. Now, Adam, one of the things that I'm curious about, obviously something that has dominated a lot of headlines, again, it's a U.S. phenomenon, but also many other places globally are experiencing this as well, is the so-called great resignation. Mm -hmm. We learned that uh, ju just yesterday stats came out that I believe it was 43 million Americans quit their jobs in 2021, which is a, a unprecedented statistic. It seems like every month we're breaking records that people are leaving their jobs. And I I'm curious about your perspective. Again, do you think this is uh, a long-term trend? Is this people that are just uh, getting a little a little twitchy after uh, two years of a pandemic and they want a change? Or what do you think is, is happening? Is this actually a fundamental shift that we're seeing in the workforce? It's a really good question. And it's one that matters to a lot of people, Dorian. So again, I'm grateful to you and Newsweek for bringing me in contact with your, your viewers. The, the, it is like a lot of other things, the great resignation is something people talk about as though it's global, but it, our perceptions are changed because U.S. is an extreme case. And, and most other countries, uh, most other high income countries, Europeans, Japan, Korea, Canada, Australia, 
are not seeing quite the same thing. Um, and I think that's instructive because part of what happened is if you look at what happened, if you look at the labor markets, the workers over the U.S. in aggregate for the last couple of years, we saw this enormous jump in unemployment, of course, at the start of COVID, despite the big government spending and the programs. And this was because the U.S. system was set up, and even when we extended all these very worthwhile new programs, that you mostly got access to those programs, to the benefits, if you made yourself unemployed. If it, or the, the businesses, even though there were supposed to be loans tied to keeping people in their jobs, in reality, the businesses still had an incentive to shrink their workforces or to push people at temporary. If you look around the rest of the world, the rest of the high income world again, Europe, Japan, Canada, Australia, UK, they went a different path. Sometimes it was legislative, sometimes it was just practice, but essentially they all put more emphasis on keeping people in jobs. You could get your benefits even if you stayed in your job and were only working part-time. They incentivized in a better way companies to furlough workers but keep them affiliated. And so what that shows up is their unemployment goes up, of course, but it comes down from a much, much lower level. I mean, we're talking about the difference between 20% and 8% or 10%. And so a whole bunch of people, particularly people in low-income service jobs in the U.S., so delivery people, home health care aides, people in retail, people in hospitality, they got over sort of the hump, the scariness of saying, okay, what happens if I look for a new job? I can't look for a new job. I, I mean, well, how will I feed people? How will I, how will I do it? They were forced to look at that. And so even if they weren't unemployed for even a short period, they saw people around them becoming unemployed. And so in the U.S., there was a genuine big shift. People are reevaluating what economists call the reservation wage, the package of pay and benefits that have to be met and work conditions that have to be met to make it worth it to stay in a job to go work. Um, and that's right. That's the right thing for people to be doing right now, I think, because the U.S. has been bad about that for a lot of our lower income workers. But what it means is the great resignation is an order of magnitude, meaning five or ten times as big in the U.S. as it is in our other countries. And it's due in part to this different approach we took to how to bridge people through the COVID recession. That's a really interesting perspective, Adam. Thank you for sharing that. Again, we're here with Adam Posen. He is an economist. He's the head of the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Now, you were mentioning just a moment ago, Adam, the difference between the U.S. and other countries and how they handled this. I have happened to know from your bio that you received the Order of the Rising Sun from the government of Japan for advancing U.S. and Japanese relations. And... Uh, also ad advancing the uh, the Japanese economy in general, and so I'm I'm actually curious if you are looking at uh, the international cross section uh, advice about things that you think that Japan, for instance, is doing right that you would like the U.S. to maybe take a page out of their book. Um, what what are some of the things that that are lessons that you wish the American economy could learn from what Japan is doing? I think there are some things. I mean, the honor from the bank, honor from the government of Japan was a huge thing for me personally. But that, what I'm about to say, isn't just because they patted me on the head. Um, the 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 there are some very fundamental things that I think the U.S. can learn from Japan. 
But I have to start with the caveat, not everything you want to learn from Japan. And there are things that suit Japan that don't suit U.S. But there are, I think, two really critical things where Japan, like the U.S., going back to this excess savings idea, has been coping for a couple of decades now um, with a world where there's low returns on a lot of assets or the assets that are available get bid up because people are scared and don't want to put their money elsewhere. And so, and they have aging society, which the U.S. has less so, but we have. Um, and, and so this, this combination leads to a situation of relatively slow growth compared to the way it used to be. And despite all the talk about asset inflation, that's actually a reflection of relatively low risk taking. Because if people were more willing to invest in risky assets or move their money, there would be a shortage of money in the treasuries and the, in the stock market index because people are taking more risk and they're not. Sorry to complicate things, but that's the background. And the, the, the Harvard economist Larry Summers called this secular stagnation several years back. And for all his controversial statements, I think on this, he was very insightful and very right. This is a common problem across the high income world right now. And so there are two things that Japan is doing right in response to that, and which I, in a small way, contributed to and encouraged, which is why I got the recognition you kindly mentioned. The first is Japan has finally started doing a lot of public investment. In the 90s, when they were running big deficits, they weren't doing public investment. They were just running deficits. Since roughly 2003, and especially since two prime ministers ago, Prime Minister Abe at the end of 2012, they've been doing more public investment. And as I tried to say at the start, in a world of low interest rates and high risk aversion, there are useful things you can do with the money where the return is higher than what the government's paying out. And so they're trying to do that now. The Biden administration, I think one of the best parts of their agenda is this attempt to get through public investment. We did get a physical infrastructure bill. There's more to come if the Congress will pass it. And I think that's a good thing because it maintains demand and employment and helps your prospects for the future since the money's sitting around anyway. The second thing Japan's been doing that I think we can learn from is, again, under the leadership of Prime Minister Abe, starting in early 2013, they pursued a policy of what's called womenomics. Um, and, and the basic idea was Japan had one of the lowest labor force participation rates of women, adult women, prime age women is what economists call them, in the world. Um, and this included very skilled women as well as less skilled. I mean, so Japan has almost parity in terms of female versus males going through university, but 10 years after university, complete disparity in pay and in how many people work. So the Abe government um, did a bunch of things, including providing more uh, flexibility in the workforce, more support for childcare, more support for medical leave to look after family members, and not enough, but a little bit in the tax code to make it fairer for second earners in a family. And they got an enormous response, um, depending on how you count it, between three and a half and four and a half million women rejoined the workforce since 2012. And the entire workforce in Japan is 55 million, roughly. And so that's a huge jump. That, that, and, and these women are generally, on average, more productive than the, than the average worker in Japan before this. And so it's been a huge benefit to the economy as well as to social justice. 
And so to me, that's another thing where the U.S. can learn because the U.S., people don't like to recognize this, but the U.S. has had declining female labor force participation for over a decade. We've had declining labor force participation in general. All these countries, including Japan, but even places like Italy, Australia, places that historically had low female labor force participation, they're overtaken the U.S. Um, even, you know, supposedly sclerotic Europe with all these social benefits and, and weird ways and laziness and all these things Americans used to talk about. Average female labor force participation is lower, is, excuse me, is significantly higher and has been for several years. And so that's just a wasted resource as well as being unfair. And so that's one element of the Build Back Better package, as it's called, the, the Biden administration put out there. I don't agree with all the elements, but that element, that set of policies, I think, could be enormously helpful, which Japan and other countries demonstrate. Yeah, Adam, thank you very much. That's a, a really fascinating perspective. Again, we're here with Adam Posen. He is an economist. He is the president of the Peterson Institute for International Economics. And we are talking about how to create the economy of the future. Now, Adam, I, I love this. Uh, again, if you're tuning in live, please type in, let us know who you are, where you are chiming in from. We'd love to uh, hear from you and take your questions for Adam Posen. And a comment came in, which I feel like, uh, you know, a fair number of people might just feel this way, Adam. Uh, Ersin says, capitalism's bad, sharing's good. <laughs> but I happen to know that your perspective is a little different, that uh, you believe, and, and please elaborate on this, that when many people feel qualms about capitalism, they feel like capitalism, that's terrible. It's not necessarily capitalism per se that they're having a problem with, but how capitalism is playing out and some of the specific policy choices that have been made. Can you talk a little bit more about this and perhaps uh, help us redeem capitalism? Thank you for just summarizing that perspective so well, Dory. I really appreciate it. I mean, that is my view and more importantly, I think the view the evidence supports. It, it's not, there is a way forward where capitalism is not perfectly, but largely put in service of society and largely beneficial to people. And the inequalities are not so outrageous. And basically that's the outcome you get in Western Europe and much of Eastern Europe, in Canada, in Australia. The, the US is an extreme outlier. And, and there's a very little way to overstate this. I mean, I was just talking about the difference in how we ran our unemployment policies and benefits during COVID and the difference in how we enable or don't enable women to work in work in the modern era. And of course, along racial lines and economic lines, the U.S. is just frankly more unjust than, than other countries. And some people would say this is worth it because we have a freer, more dynamic market. But the evidence over the last 20 plus years is that a we don't have a free or more dynamic market. Um, a lot of people have documented both on the right and the left just how much our companies are concentrated in, in monopolies and oligopolies, how inflexible our workforce is compared to to some of these other places. But also we are not sacrifice. It's not a trade off because there's a lot of other countries that are much more open to international trade and competition than the US and have been opening up even more. And they're still got 
some some decline in equality, but they're able to more than offset it through government programs. In the U.S., there just isn't support for that. And you know, there's an argument that's been made by historians and economists that, frankly, it's part of the legacy of slavery and institutionalized racism that rural white people don't want to vote for programs that benefit everyone universally or benefit in their perception disproportionately people of color or urban people. And there's a lot of evidence, sadly, to say that seems to be a big part of it. Anyway, the, the main point is it doesn't, capitalism doesn't have to look like what we see in the US. It doesn't have to look like what Charles Dickens wrote about in the late 19th century. It can if we let it, but it doesn't have to be that way. Interesting. Thank you for that perspective, Adam. So something that is on the minds of many people, we're seeing headlines about this. This is this is in the news in a way that it literally has not been for 40 years is inflation. And a question came in related to um, what we were talking about a few moments ago um, with regard to the Great Resignation. Um, Josh was curious, are we going to see a lasting change to wage levels as a result of the Great Resignation? Do you do you feel like uh, inflationary pressures on, on wages are here to stay? Or what's, what's your take on all of this and why prices seem to suddenly be going through the roof in a way that they haven't since, uh, you know, the, the late car Carter, early Reagan administration. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's true. It's 40 years, basically. 1985 was the last time we had really peak inflation and the, the Fed had to tighten a lot to get rid of it. Um, so I think what's going on here, again, is one longer term thing, but mostly a short, in this case, it's much more shorter term thing. We started the conversation talking about overheating. And it's just, as my colleague at Peterson, Jason Furman, has put it, you know, you, you, if you're building a fire, you don't throw all the logs on at once. Um, that, you know, we had this really big extra fiscal stimulus package with the $2,000 checks to everybody that came out in January, February of last year. And that was at a time when the economy was already recovering and starting to move forward, and we had already done a lot of spending. And even though I'm a huge advocate of public investment, that was neither a great use of money and it was too much in too short a time. I think relating to that, and this I emphasize even more than the overspending though, is that we were in this period like other countries of, of transition, that great resignation here, but just in general, you were suddenly seeing a huge jump in demand for goods in particular, not so much services because people weren't yet out in public as much. And they, there's what economists call inelasticity. The supply just couldn't ramp up that quickly. And so you were in this temporary period of labor shortage, of goods shortage, and a lot of energy being put in. And that combination meant the inflation you got for a given amount of what's called overheating was much more than we would have normally expected. So, Adam, all of a sudden, I am not hearing you. I think you got muted somehow. So I am not sure if you can hear me, but yes, there, there we go. Perfect. Can you try that I'm again? I'm so sorry. Uh, after I'm not a pro at this at all. Um, You're doing so great. On the, on the wages point, which your listener rightly raises, I think the key word is levels. We are seeing a meaningful jump 
in the level of wages, particularly for lower income service workers in the US. You see McDonald's and Bank of America and Walmart, just to pick a few names of major employers who are de facto raising the minimum wage to $15 or more, even though we haven't legislated it. And there's very strong evidence already that when they do that, that pushes up the, the minimum wage of other companies, including small businesses around them, because they have to compete for labor. And so there is a meaningful jump here. But I don't think it's the start of an ongoing cycle, sad to say, because once you leave Joe's Cafe to work for McDonald's, or once you, leave, you shut down your shop to go to work for Walmart or whatever it is, you're joining a non-unionized workforce. Um, you're joining a big company and they give you these new benefits and higher wages to get you in the door and they'll keep giving them to you, presumably. But it's not like you have a lot of bargaining power once you're on the other side of the door. It's not like a year from now you're going to say, oh, I'll walk. Because it actually is difficult and traumatic. I mean, teens go in and out of jobs, but most people from their early mid-20s through their 50s and 60s prefer to stay put um, for good reason. Um, they shouldn't have to. We should make it easier for them to switch jobs, like with portable health insurance, but most people prefer to stay put. So I think we're seeing a one-time level shift. We're seeing an improvement in the wages and working conditions of people who were in bad jobs or bad conditions, but it's not something that's the start of some ongoing redistribution to lower income workers. You need to do a lot more in the society to make that happen. Thank you very much. We're here with Adam Posen. Adam is an economist. He is the president of the Peterson Institute for International Economics. And we are having a discussion today uh, brought to you by Newsweek. This is part of a special series presented by the government of Japan, where we are talking about the future of capitalism. Now, Adam, I have to ask you the question that's on everybody's mind. Cryptocurrency, yeah. NFTs. What's the what's the deal? Are, 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 is is everything going to happen? Is the Peterson Institute soon going to be paying you in Bitcoin or Ether? Oh God, Inquiring minds want to know. Oh uh, no! I mean, as I think's been reported all over the place, a lot of NBA players, the new New York mayor, a bunch of people decided I want to be paid in Bitcoin, and they decided it just in time to get a fifty percent cut in what that was worth in real dollar spending terms. So, you know, I mean, just the basic idea is they, the Bitcoin to some degree is like the GameStops or AMC theaters stock bubble. And here I do use the word bubble. I mean, it, it's people chasing these things because they assume they'll be able to sell them for a later price that's higher and no inherent reason beyond that. I think the other thing that's going on with Bitcoin is that there's a high basically the same people who distrust the government um, for good and bad reasons, mostly bad reasons um, or unjustified reasons, let's put it that way, um, are the same people who distrust authority, who distrust vaccinations. It's not perfect, but the same groups of people are particularly vulnerable to saying, well, I want a currency that's out from the government. And what goes with having a currency that's out from the government is, yeah, you, 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 there's this tiny risk the government's going to try to expropriate you in some way, or that you're subject to inflation, which we're now having, but not terrible, and it's going to be over pretty soon. And on the other side, you've got this incredibly large risk of volatility in the value of Bitcoin and or other cryptocurrencies. I don't mean to single them out, although 
why not? Um, and 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 just you know all the stories that are true about people who lose their password or lose their USB drive or whatever. I mean, there's a reason why all of the civilized world moved to government currencies because even though they're not perfect, it's far superior to these private crazy currencies. And so whether you're doing it because you're doing it as a speculative bubble or you're doing it because you mistakenly think you can't trust government currency, it's a bad idea. So anybody who's listening, sell. That's pretty definitive. All right. Laying it down. Adam Posen. Thank you very much. All right. He is uh, he's bearish on the crypto. <laughs> so, Adam, I wanted to follow back up. We have uh, some some viewer interest here in pressing a little bit further on the inflation question. And Rebecca uh, was chiming in, and she's curious. I often hear that we're getting used to higher prices, so those prices will stick around. Do you think that that is going to be true? Because you know the wages are going up, so is just everything going to to level up and even out? Or what, what's your perspective about all that? Sorry, I'm, I'm I, I I just had trouble following the last bit of it. So so could you repeat that, please? Yeah, of course, of course. So per Rebecca's point, she is right. curious, um, you know, we're, we're just getting used to these higher prices, it seems right. like. And so it seems likely, perhaps, that they will stick around. Once the prices are raised, they're probably yeah. not going to be lowered. Um, but does it mean that everything will Got sort it. of sort out in the end as the wages go up too? Is it just that we're, you know, we're kind of turning, turning the ratchet yeah. and, and it'll be even? What do you think? Thank you. And thank you, Rebecca, for the question. Um, I, I, I think it's unfortunately not going to work out quite even, Stephen. Um, on the one hand, there are going to be specific goods and services, maybe not in time for your outdoor furniture, Dory, but you know, the, the, the ketchup bottle is there. There are going to be things that are oversupplied soon or that we have excess capacity in making soon or, and prices will for some of them go down. Um, one of the things we've seen over the last 20 years is that there is some downward motion in prices, not in everything, but you know, things that Amazon can sell or Walmart can sell, you do sometimes see movement down. So I think on certain kinds of goods, basically a lot of what used to be called white goods, um, large consumer purchases, possibly including autos, we're probably going to see some downward movement. In the overall economy, though, remember 80% of the economy roughly is services and slightly lower percentage is services in the average household's consumption basket, what they, what they use. So medical care, education, um, these things are very unlikely <laughs> to see a decline in prices. Um, now, will wages catch up fully? Probably not, because as we were just talking about, workers aren't as powerful bargainers in general as they were, say, in the 70s. And there's good and bad to that, because if workers automatically catch up with every price shift, then it feeds on itself and you just keep getting more price shifts and more wage shifts and more price shifts and more wage shifts. And you don't want that. But you do want real wages on average to rise because as long as the economy is being improving in productivity, there's some money there that should be going to workers. Right now, um, we have charts about this in the Peterson Institute website that were just updated with the latest data. 
the if you look at the last 15 18 months um real wages meaning wages net of inflation are down slightly they had been going up but now they're down because inflation has gotten so high and so i think what's likely to happen is both wage inflation and price inflation are going to flatten out um, over the next year and a half, assuming the Fed does what they say they're going to do, which is raise rates. And people will be left probably on net about where they were a couple of years ago. Um, but again, it's going to vary a lot by what kind of work you're doing, whether you were able to switch jobs and get a boost, how dependent are you on paying for private school. But at the average level, it's going to be not quite a wash, but it's going to be roughly a wash. Thank you for that nuance. That's really helpful. Sorry to go on so long. That's another word for nuance. Um, <laughs> no, this is, this is great. This is why we love having you. We're, we're here with Adam Posen from the Peterson Institute for International Economics. And a question that, that always seems to come up, uh, Adam, hand in glove with discussions of capitalism is inequality. And so one of our viewers watching this is Klaus. Klaus says, hi, former European here. What is the fix for the inherent tendency of capitalism to increase inequality? Is there anything that can work? Anything? Klaus is dying for an answer here. Adam, we'd, we'd love to get your perspective. Yeah, um, there are things. Um, the first and biggest thing is you can affect so-called after-tax inequality, pretty much almost as much as you want. So, and this is the difference between a European welfare state, which you know as a former European from an American. It's not perfect. I mean, I don't know which country you're from, but I've lived in and done a lot of work in Germany, for example. And clearly there has been some rise in inequality, even in Germany, which has a lot of transfers and taxes. But in Grossen and Ganzen, as they say in Germany, basically overall, um, you can offset a lot of what the inequality capitalism does by providing people with public services by right, like healthcare, by having a progressive tax code, by having inheritance taxes, if not wealth taxes. Um, it can be done. You can close an awful lot of the gap. And uh, Japan's another example of this. They have seen inequality rise somewhat in the last few years. Um, the new prime minister has just made some statements that he really wants to directly address that. And the main tools you've got are transfers, social welfare pro programs, taxes. Now, the problem is there, if you overdo that, you end up with some distortions. Um, some disincentives to work, some misallocations of capital. Um, these tend to be exaggerated, in my view. Um, but you know, if you go back to Denmark or the Netherlands circa 1985, you're in worlds where you know taxation rates were extremely high and minimum benefits were extremely high, and therefore a lot of people didn't want to work. And anyway, that's there. You have to think about it, but that's generally not a binding constraint. Generally, you can do a lot. The trickier part is people, a lot of people don't, this is particularly true in the US, but I think in a lot of places, don't want to be dependent on the government. Or it's not the same to them to say, okay, after taxes and transfers, I live a pretty good life, but I'm only making one tenth or one hundredth of 
you know, the white guy from Harvard up the street. Um, wouldn't be up the street in the US probably, it would be in a different county, but anyway. That's harder to deal with, frankly. Um, and and sometimes people try to sell that they have an answer to that. And unfortunately, that unlike other things, we we don't have, I think, a good answer. So most, let's call them center left economists like me, sort of say we have to keep trying to figure out something to do that. Um, and there are people uh, who talk about, well, we got to provide more good jobs. Um, as I tried to argue in a in an article that came out in Foreign Affairs last March, April, um, that's sort of misleading because because a you can't always do it, and b that really tends in practice to be code for we want to keep the angry white males who do things with their hands protected in a way that single women and people of color are not. And I'm sorry to call it out that way, but that's the record. Um, that's what's happened repeatedly and throughout the Western world and in Japan. So I can give you a partial good answer and not a full reassurance. We can do a lot to make sure people's quality of life is pretty equal. We can do a lot to make sure that post-tax and transfers, their income is decent. We cannot, and we should do more on the wealthy and equality front, particularly through inheritance taxes and real estate taxes. But we can't fully fix it. You, you, you have to accept that, at least that so far, nobody's come up with a system where if you try to do it pre-tax inequality, you can find a way of doing it, which isn't protecting certain incumbent privileged people or interfering enormously directly into day-to-day -day life. Thank you very much for that, Adam. That's a, a really helpful frame to be thinking through Klaus's question. So we're coming into the denouement of our interview. We've got about four minutes left, so we have time for one or two more questions. But we have been here with Adam Posen, economist and head of the Peterson Institute for International Economics. We've been part of a series talking about creating the economy of the future, which is presented by the government of Japan. And if you want to make sure you never miss one of our special Wednesday sessions during the month of February, you can tune in, go to doryclark.com slash LinkedIn. You can follow me there. You can make sure to tune in and uh, of course, follow Newsweek on LinkedIn or your social network of choice so that you can make sure you never miss one of our episodes that takes place every Wednesday at 1230 Eastern. Adam, I have an important question for you. So is all of this going to actually be a moot point because all of our jobs will be taken by robots and artificial intelligence? What What is your view of this? There have been some apocalyptic uh, yeah. predictions that have come down the pike. Do you think that AI is going to eat all of our jobs? What's the, what's the verdict? No. Um, I fear sometimes that AI will eat us literally when I see those films of, you know, the, the, the robot dogs who can dance and leap onto tables and, and cavort about. But no, I mean, again, 80% of our workforce is services. And while some of it can be somewhat automated, I mean, there's a lot of healthcare where we could benefit from automation. There's a lot of things that are about human interaction and be it teaching, be it, be it what we're doing right now, be it um, forms of creativity, be it forms of personal service. Um, so the more realistic threat is, 
do we worry that we exacerbate inequality building on what you and Klaus were just raising? Because essentially the robots replace a certain class of people. And it's not necessarily just people with high school educations. There are certain things like in medicine where we don't need as many doctors if we do automation. But do we end up with a world where those people have no choice but to essentially do low paid service jobs? And I think we can work on that. There are alternatives. There are ways of channeling and helping workers. And one of the things, again, that U.S. can learn from others, in this case, Japan also can learn uh, from Europe and Australia is what's called active labor market policies, which do a better job, not a perfect job, but a significantly better job of helping people who lose jobs find new ones. I like it. That's great. Adam, thank you very much. My last question for you, if you if you were the world czar, let's say we invented a, a job, what what would be your wish for improving the global economy? If you if you had a magic wand and could make one wish about the way that things could be done that you think would improve global economic conditions for everyone, what do you wish that governments or people would do? Let there be a lot better, more fairly monitored migration and guest workers across countries. That's the single biggest thing out there. It doesn't necessarily make put out of work workers in the rich countries and in fact helps them. This is another example from Japan, although sadly they've gone back on it over the last couple of years. But for a while in the 2010s decade, Japan was opening itself up to immigration in a way it never had before and to guest workers, and they benefited from it. Um, and we've seen this around the world. It's the biggest win-win we could run. I realize the politics of it right now in the U.S. and in some other places are terribly toxic. But on the economics as well as the justice, the single biggest thing we could do is create a system for migration and migration workers. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. We have been here with Adam Posen. He is an economist. He is the head of the Peterson Institute for International Economics. We have been talking about the future of capitalism and how to create the economy of the future. This is a special Newsweek presented series. You can tune in next Wednesday, same bat time. It's 1230 Eastern, 930 AM Pacific. And thank you to the government of Japan, who is our presenting sponsor. Adam Posen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Dorian. I'll be tuning in next week, too. Thank you, and take care, everyone.